Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable. Oh, it's been a busy week on the political front. No surprise, Donald Trump won the New Hampshire primary, besting Nikki Haley by 11 points. But Haley has vowed to plow on, carrying the fight next to her home state of South Carolina, where most of the state's Republicans are actually lined up against their former governor. So can she hang on till Super Tuesday? Two days later, and again today, Trump is back in a New York courtroom defending himself in a case where he's already been found guilty of sexual assault. Now, the question is how much you'll have to pay. And now it's almost certain that 2024 will be a Trump versus Biden replay of 2024. And President Biden also kickstarted his campaign this week, putting two new top officials in charge and picking up the powerful endorsement of the United Auto Workers. In other news, it looks like former President Trump has killed a bipartisan Senate deal to beef up security at the border in return for continued aid to Ukraine. And according to the Commerce Department, the economy grew at a record rate in 2023, eliminating for now any talk of a recession. Okay, what's it all mean? Well, let's ask today's panel. Joining us today, Philip Bump, national columnist for The Washington Post, author of How to Read This Chart newsletter and author of a great new recent book, The Aftermath. Uh, Philip, welcome back. Hello, sir. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Melanie Mason, senior political reporter for Politico, covering the West Coast and joining us from Los Angeles. Hello, Melanie. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Good to have you back as well. And uh, covering politics for the New York Times, based in the South, coming to us from Columbia, South Carolina today, Maya King. Hello, Maya. Hi, Bill. All right. Boy, we got we got California, South Carolina, New York, and Washington, D.C. Got to cover today. <laughs> Just about. Uh, okay. So, Philip, let's start with New Hampshire after winning 98 out of 99 counties in Iowa. Trump beats Nikki Haley by 11 points in New Hampshire. But you've been looking at the charts and the results. Mm -hmm. Is Trump's um, strength as big as it looks? Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I would say it's probably bigger than it looks just based on the top line numbers. I mean, one of the things we saw between Iowa and New Hampshire is that despite the fact that, you know, with fewer opponents, he did about as well in Iowa as he did in New Hampshire, uh, the the percentage of Republicans, according to exit polls in New Hampshire, who supported uh, Donald Trump was was robust, that 75 percent of his support came from Republicans, as it, uh, slightly more actually than he got in Iowa. Uh, uh -huh. He was he, he had or I said that backwards, I'm sorry, 75% of Republicans supported Trump slightly more than they had in Iowa. Most of Nikki Haley's support in New Hampshire came from independents or or people who I self-identified as Democrats, uh, which is not particularly surprising, but it is important to remember 
that, you know, obviously this is the Republican Party primary. And, and when we look at states that either have closed primaries uh, where independents can't participate or have fewer such independents, uh, that that's advantageous to Donald Trump. And of course, most states moving forward have those things. So, you know, this is this is an aberration. I think there are a lot of reasons why this was said to be perhaps Nikki Haley's best state. Uh, and even in that best state, she still lost by double digits. But looking at those independents uh, uh, who did not vote for Donald Trump, who voted overwhelmingly for Nikki Haley, does that bode ill for Donald Trump in a general election? Or is it too early to sit out? I mean, it certainly is not great. Uh, you know, anytime someone actively comes out to vote against you, that's not a real confidence-inspiring act, right? Uh, but, you know, there was a real motivation for independents to come out, uh, independents who didn't like Trump. There was less motivation for independents who did like Trump, given the polling numbers, right? You know, one of the things I think that's forgotten both here and in Iowa is that when people think their candidate's going to win overwhelmingly, they're less concerned about actually going out to vote. They have less incentive to do so. Uh, so those people were particularly... Uh, they felt particularly engaged in the race to go out and send a message to Donald Trump. Uh, they were not all of the independents in New Hampshire. They were probably the independents in New Hampshire who were going to vote for Biden in the fall anyway, but had an opportunity here to come out and make a statement. Uh, you know, that's a generalization. I can't back that up based on exit polling, but that would be my assumption that that is probably what's happening here. And so I'm not sure there's a there's a really strong lesson to take away. Uh, so now, uh, skipping the Nevada caucuses, which uh, Nikki Haley decided to do, uh, we go on to South Carolina. Uh, Maya, you're there this morning, but I want to come back to election night in New Hampshire, where it's pretty clear that Donald Trump and uh, Nikki Haley left there with hard feelings toward each other. First of all, Donald Trump, uh, here, back to back, Donald Trump and then Nikki Haley. Let's start with Donald Trump. He just can't believe that Nikki Haley went on television and basically declared victory after she, after she had lost. Nobody's ever done that in American politics, right? Uh, so here's Donald Trump. I find in life you can't let people get away with bullshit, okay? And when I watched her in the fancy dress that probably wasn't so fancy, the imposter that went up on the stage before and, like, claimed a victory. She did very poorly, actually. And just a little note to Nikki. She's not going to win. She's not going to win. But if she did, she would be under investigation by those people in 15 minutes. And I could tell you five reasons why already. Not big reasons. A little stuff that she doesn't want to talk about. Donald Trump got out there and just threw a temper tantrum. He pitched a fit. He was, he was insulting. He was doing what he does. But I know that's what he does when he's insecure. I know that's what he does when he is threatened. And he should feel threatened, without a doubt. You know, it's interesting because a few days ago, he was going on and on about me. I mean, for a while. On and on about why I didn't send in security to the Capitol on January 6th. He said it over and over and over and over again. All right, Maya. So should Donald Trump feel threatened in South Carolina? Um, in a word, no, I don't think so. And we actually saw a really strong show of force from South Carolinians in New Hampshire. Um, a large delegation of South Carolina Republicans actually traveled to New Hampshire to support uh, former President Trump. And then, of course, the most I think high profile of those South Carolina Republicans was Senator Tim Scott, who on the night of the primary actually traveled with former President Trump on his plane. 
to New Hampshire uh, from Florida and endorsed the president's reelection bid there. And the reason why that's so significant, of course, is because Nikki Haley actually uh, appointed right. Senator Scott to his seat. And there was more of a back and forth and taunting there on the stage in New Hampshire with uh, with former President Trump actually pointing that out and, and Scott kind of joining that um, that taunt of Nikki Haley in in other words. And I think also I was I was at the rally with Haley here in South Carolina. She was in Charleston when she was talking about Trump sort of throwing a temper tantrum. And it was a moment that I thought really captured this entire race here in the state, because as she's talking about Trump, trying to bring or some sort of a challenge to him and say that this is still anybody's race, she's struggling to really galvanize more support. It was about the same sized crowd that I'd seen from from her since covering her in the early days of the primary. And then um, the Trump campaign blasted out an email with the names of more than 150 South Carolina current and former elected officials who had endorsed his campaign. Whoa, whoa. She is not, she is yet to, to, to have that same show of force. Yeah. So she's got real problems here. I think she's counting on a lot of name recognition and hometown uh, goodwill or home state goodwill, but it seems very clear. This is, this is also Trump's race to lose. So uh, even 3,000 miles away, uh, Melanie, you're following this very closely, of course, because California is such a big political powerhouse. Um, what's your read? Is this in effect all over? Uh, we're going to see, it's pretty clear now, it's going to be uh, a makeover of a uh, Trump versus Biden. It certainly feels like we're 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 like heading our way to 2020 redux, and I think that particularly after South Carolina, when I think it's going to feel, um, for all the reasons that Maya said, like like pretty pretty real that we should be turning our attention to to the general election. Um, I mean, I almost feel like in the political conversations that we're having out here in California that foregone conclusion is already baked in. In fact, the most interesting conversations now are sort of talking to uh, Republicans that are in vulnerable areas here in California about whether they would endorse Trump. I mean, it's like we're just zooming past any sort of um, Mm. uh, question about the primary at this point. Um, But I think that because of that, I think that that the question is going to be the same, particularly about Trump, which is how strong is he? Is he so dominant? But I think that the answer it's going to change because we're talking about a different context. And so I think that that two things can be true at the same time. Trump can be extremely strong and dominant in this Republican primary, and he has showed it um, in all of these these places up until then. Um, and still, I think that there are these kind of like warning signs or underlying weaknesses um, for the general election that are starting to show through. I do think that there are some elements to the New Hampshire and even Iowa results about some of his weakness um, in more affluent um, higher educated counties, and that I think that sort of shows us that we are going to have that same key matchup um, that we did in 2020, which is going to be the fight for the suburbs, the fight for mm-hmm. college-educated voters um, versus getting the turnout for non-college voters who tend to be really galvanized by Trump. Um, so it'll, I, I kind of almost feel like we're in the precipice of a bit of a narrative shift when it comes to the general general election, even though I don't think that the underlying facts have changed very much. It's just that we're going to start looking at a different audience, which is instead of the hardcore Republican voters and their loyalty to Trump, it's going to be turning to that pretty narrow band of voters that are going to be either up for grabs or are going to be key to activating the general and how they respond to this rematch from four years ago. 
Uh, Philip, uh, curious to, to, to your take, if it is in fact, and it does, I certainly agree, looks like it's going to be Trump v. Biden, uh, absent some heart attack or some other cataclysmic event, uh, isn't, couldn't we make the argument rather that that do-over is the best thing Joe Biden could want, could hope for? Well, that certainly is how the Biden campaign looks at it. Um, it it's sort of hard to say, right? I mean, uh, you know, 2016 and 2020 were both years in which Donald Trump lost the popular vote. You know, in both cases, the winning president won by virtue of less than 100,000 votes in a smattering of states across the United States. You know, this is this is a it's a it's a toss up country and it has been for some time. Um, and so who knows what happens once the campaign starts? Right. You know, I mean, if it were Nikki Haley against Joe Biden. Yeah, sure. Right now, the polling says, you know, people like X, Y and Z and, and Nikki Haley wins a lot of the polls by a substantial margin. But, you know, once people get to know Nikki Haley, does that shift? I mean, there are all these questions that exist. Right. Um, that said, yeah, I mean, I think that just based on what you see out there, yes, the reason that Joe Biden won in 2020 was because people were very frustrated by Donald Trump and disliked Donald Trump. That's why a huge chunk of Joe Biden voters came out, not because they loved Joe Biden, but because they disliked Donald Trump. Donald Trump did not have that problem. Most of his voters liked him. The problem is just weren't that many of them, right? So the question this year, I think, is yes, all the same mechanics are largely in play. I think that's absolutely true. Um, I think that as the campaign grinds on and there's a lot of time to grind, given how early these things can wrap up. Um, I think that people are going to be reminded to some extent of why they didn't like Donald Trump when he was president. Um, but I also think the question is going to come down to, do those people who came out in 2020, not because they liked Biden, but because they didn't like Trump, are they going to come out at all? And I think that's the question the Biden campaign has about young voters in particular. Uh, but I think that's that if, if Biden can still encourage people to come out and vote for him as a measure to stop Trump, then I think he wins re-election. And if he can't do that, then I think he doesn't. Right. So, um, Maya, when we were listening to um, Nikki Haley a little earlier, she did allude to this, uh, and it is an issue that she is now raising more and more often, which is the issue of Donald Trump's mental acuity, to say it politely. Um, here's just a little listen to listening in on Donald Trump at the microphone in front of rallies uh, this week, a little montage of uh, the Donald Trump which is incapable of solving even the smallest, smallest problem, the simplest of problems we can no longer solve. We can't do anything. We are an institute and a powerful death penalty. We will put this on. You know, we won world wars out of forts, Fort Benning, Fort this, Fort that, many forts, a lot of our forts. We won two world wars out of a lot of these forts. Uh, these are not muscle guys here. They're muscle guys up here, right? And they calmly walk to a seat. Ding, 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 ding. They've only got 17 seconds to figure this whole thing out, right? Boom. Okay. Missile launch. Pshin, boom. No, you don't have to be a total genius. Remain in Mexico until you've added and everything. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, Diagram that sentence for me. So, Maya, what do you, is this, an, now that Nikki Haley has raised this issue, is this something that the mainstream media will be paying closer attention to? I think it's something that we already are at least trying to capture. I mean, it's true. What Haley is saying is that this, or what she's, I guess, getting at in part, is just that this is an election that nobody wants because you have these two old, old white guys just mm -hmm. running against each other. 
And she has marketed herself repeatedly as something different and representative of a new generation. But the question of how closely the media will cover this, I think, is an important one, because for a long time, it's true that we focused largely on Biden's age, I think, because he's one, the sitting president who has been um, speaking in public just a lot more often. But now we're getting a, a, a stronger taste of uh, former President Trump back on the campaign trail and seeing there are real problems with how he's speaking in public and the sense that he makes um, another really big flub that that Haley pointed out was when he confused her with Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. And I think when she was first running, her suggestion that mental acuity tests should be a part of, uh, of a, or at least required for people running for office was really, I think, offensive to a number of people. But as we get deeper into this campaign and start to see both of these candidates speaking publicly, and I'm talking about Biden and Trump, more people are coming along or at least seeing why she was asking about that. Right. Uh, so Biden did get some good news. In fact, the nation got some good news this week from the Commerce Department saying that 2023 uh, was a stunning growth uh, in the economy, particularly with a very strong fourth quarter. Um, uh, some praise for that coming, um, Melanie, from some maybe unexpected quarters. Here is one voice you may recognize crowing about how strong, how well the economy is doing. I'm an honest broker. He got a good 3.3% GDP number for the fourth quarter, following a good 4.9% in the third quarter, okay? If I were he, I would be bragging about it too. And inflation has come down. All's fair and love war and politics. Brag when you can. And that voice you may recognize, the voice of Larry Kudlow, Donald Trump's chief economic advisor on Fox Business yesterday, saying Joe Biden's done a great job in the economy. Um, so, Melanie, does Biden get any credit? Well, I mean, in some ways, we know that that maybe he's not getting any credit, but at least the idea that the economy, this that we're maybe moving past what people are calling the kind of vibe session phase of this economy, like that, that, that might be ending, right? I mean, we know that the two that consumer confidence hit a two year high. I mean, there's constantly these good economic metrics that we're hearing about in the news. I mean, the stock market's such an imperfect gauge of the health of the economy, but it is one where every day there's a headline. And so if you are seeing yet another record high closure, that's just another thing that sort of penetrates the minds of people of like, okay, that is again, something mm -hmm. good. And we are seeing, um, you know, that seem to be um, reflecting in how people are feeling tentatively about the economy. I mean, I think that the Obviously, as, as has been pointed out many times, if the stock market was hitting its marks, um, the marks it's, it's hitting right now under Trump, that would be there would be these like long social media screeds from 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 him every day. And you're just not hearing that to that same sort of giddiness um, from the Biden White House. I think that because Democrats still don't want to look like they're spiking the football when the truth is that there are still a lot of underlying issues with our economy, issues that have that predated 2020, that predated you know, the Trump era. And you don't want to look out of touch. I mean, um, earlier this week, we had a uh, Senate debate um, in California among the Senate candidates. And one of the things that was asked was asking all of the Democrats to rate the current economy. And the reason that that question was interesting is because 
it kind of put them in a box, right? They wanted to reflect that there was good things going on. And yet if they said it's a 10, it would seem like for people watching at home, like I don't feel like it's a 10 or maybe I even feel like we're getting closer to a 10, but I'm pretty sure that out there elsewhere, people don't feel like it's a 10. And so I think that Democrats are, are, are not going to be so full throated in their praise for the economy because they know that that's not necessarily something that is felt by everybody. Um, and yet I, I think that there is a little bit of a, of a chicken or the egg kind of question here, which is that if they're being so deferential to people's perceptions of the economy, is that going to change people's perceptions of the economy um, when the economy is actually doing doing relatively well? And so when they see these numbers like the consumer confidence number and others, I think that it gives Democratic politicians and, and the White House and Biden a little bit more um, permission to 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 brag a little bit without fearing that it's going to sound tone deaf. Well, we want to hear more about that California debate, uh, Melanie, for what you were one of the moderators. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, we'll do, hear a little more about that after the break. But before we leave the campaign trail, um, Philip, um, Joe, Biden, Joe Biden got another bit of good news this week. Uh, with a big endorsement of the United Auto Workers, Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, did not hold back when he said, here's why we are endorsing Joe Biden. Donald Trump is a scab. Donald Trump stands against everything we stand for as a union, as a society. This election is about who will stand up with us and who will stand in our way. And this choice is clear. Joe Biden bet on the American worker while Donald Trump blamed the American worker. So, Philip, two questions. Number one, important of union endor- importance of union endorsements these days in American politics. And two, does this sort of undercut Donald Trump's efforts, and, and to a large extent, pretty successful, to identify the Republican Party with the white working class Americans? I, I think that the, the line that Donald Trump is a scab because during the UAW strike, he went to a, you know, a non-union plant. I, I think that's a powerful line because the issue that unions have had for quite some time is that the leadership, and by quite some time, I mean really very pronounced in the Trump era, is that the leadership is taking a position and then the members are not necessarily in line yeah, with that right. position, right? You know, union members are... A lot of them are working class white guys, you know, fewer than you might assume. There's, a, there's been a huge surge in the number of uh, women and people of color, particularly in the service economy or members of unions. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these guys, the people to whom both presidential candidates are really trying to appeal since they've been the swing voters uh, or their states have been swing states in recent contests is those working class white guys. And they simply are, you know. These, there are union members who are really active in the union, really down with the union, as Bill, you well know. And then there are some who are just like members of the union, pay their dues and don't pay much attention to it and may not agree with these endorsements. So I think that scab line is important because it reinforces not just the UAW as an entity says you should support uh, Joe Biden, but it says this is who this guy is and he is against our interests. Whether or not that still resonates with those people, the, the working class white guys who are very much pro, you know, inclined to be pro-Trump, I, I don't know. But I think that's the right way to go about it, to frame it outside of the context of what the union wants and instead to say, here's how this person's working against the union's interests. Right. Okay. So that's still lots more of the news of the week to cover. We didn't talk about what's happening down in Georgia yet, more about that California debate uh, and about efforts to get a... Uh, a deal in the Senate on immigration and Ukraine, which pres- the former president seems to be uh, determined to kill. All of that coming after, after we take a quick break here 
on today's Reporters Roundtable with Philip Bump from the Washington Post, Melanie Mason uh, from Politico in California, and Maya King from the New York Times. Quick break. We'll be right back. Today's roundtable uh, here on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by another major union, which has already endorsed uh, Joe Biden for president in 2024. The Labor's International Union of North America, or LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A, as they call themselves, under their new president, Brent Booker, the members of the uh, Labor's Union, really the backbone of the American labor movement, um, most active in the construction area. Um, millions of new jobs, rebuilding America's infrastructure, also active in the energy field, uh, old-fashioned pipelines and newfangled uh, solar panels and wind turbines, if you will, uh, and also active in the healthcare industry. We salute the members of LIUNA for their good work rebuilding America and thank them for their longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at LIUNA, L-I-U-N-A, .org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's Reporters Roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Another great big welcome back to Amaya King from the New York Times, Philip Bump from the Washington Post, Melanie Mason, senior political reporter for Politico out on the West Coast. And Melanie, when the... uh, what is it, four candidates for U.S. Senate, three Democrats and one Republican took the stage uh, this week. You were one of the moderators firing questions at them. Um, I guess the most notable exchange was when all three Democrats spent about 10 minutes trying to get Steve Garvey, former Dodger, uh, to answer the question about having voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020, whether he would vote for him again in 2024. Uh, Steve Garvey would not answer that question. Here's a little bit of that exchange. You're banging on that trash can just like the Astros did. Once a Dodger, always a Dodger. And refused to answer the question. Katie Porter with maybe the line of the night. What was your read from the panel? Um, my, I mean, my sense from, from taking a look at it, first of all, it was like every debate prep clearly was just like, how many baseball puns can we all try to work in <laughs> to our question? Obviously, as a Dodger fan, I didn't love hearing Dodger used as an insult. Um, but I think that it was almost comical. I mean, Adam Schiff at one point said, like, this will be my one and only pun um, to Garvey's answer. It was a swing and a miss. Um, 
Um, so that was, you know, predictable and yet nobody could really help themselves. Um, and it was, I mean, I think that that was the most interesting exchange because it was this kind of pile on effect. Garvey's such an interesting character because he is, he's running almost as this, like, I, I, I call him as like a, an animatronic Ronald Reagan. It reminds me sort of of the Hall of Presidents from Disney World. Um, <laughs> and he really, there are some like real sort of in cadence and in vibe a lot of, of Ronald Reagan in him. And he, he wants to sort of remind people of this sort of nostalgic figure of, you know, baseball greatness gone by um, and, 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 and politics gone by when politics wasn't so nasty and divisive. Um, and so that's why he's trying to avoid being pinned down too much um, when it comes to Trump. There's also a math reason for this, right? I mean, if he had any chance at all at winning the Senate seat um, in the general election, he would have to win vote uh, voters who do not like Donald Trump because that is the vast majority of voters in California. And yet, if he has any chance at all in making it into the top two primary, since we have an open primary here in California, mm -hmm. he has to consolidate these Republican voters to, to be enough to propel him past uh, two other Democrats. And so he can't look like he's stiff arming Trump um, either. And so you, you had this kind of tortured exchange um, that quite honestly, in some ways, is like the most abs absurd representation of the larger problem that's facing the Republican Party um, in in blue and purple areas right now, which is, you know, how how do you position yourself relative to Trump? And it was kind of fascinating because Garvey, in that he is a political novice, in that he's not super polished, um, almost in some ways is like represents the purest form of this conundrum. Um, and I think that all of the Democrats saw opportunity and they pounced. Um, and it, it, it really did feel like they loved um, picking apart that non-answer. Uh, just to clarify for all of our listeners around the country. So the primary is in March, correct? That's right. And under California's new system, uh, the top two vote-getters will be in the general election. It could be two Democrats. It could be one Democrat and one Republican, right? That's correct. Correct. Yeah. So Garvey wants to, is hoping to beat out two Democrats at least and then face the, the leading Democrat. Right. And 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 to the, the nature of the general election will change dramatically if there are two Democrats that make it um, onto November versus a Democrat and a Republican. Because, again, I think that there's not going to be a lot of suspense if it is Garvey running against either Adam Schiff uh, or Katie Porter or maybe Congresswoman Lee if she has a search in the polls, because we just know California is a blue state. But if you have these two Democrats, um, then it really becomes a race, a very expensive race. And I think that Democrats uh, across the country, my, my colleague Ali Mutnick had a great story about this, which is like they are they are in some ways praying that it's a um, that it's not a competitive race because that's a lot of money that would be sucked up for a safe seat in California that could be spent elsewhere. Right. So, uh, uh, Maya, let's come back to your territory. Uh, you're usually based in Georgia, where now one of the biggest issues is the controversy surrounding District Attorney Fannie Willis, the one who has brought this um, election fraud case against Donald Trump. Um, there are others now, including the former president himself, who's saying she should be fired or she should be uh, taken off this case because of a conflict of interest and maybe even profiting financially from this case uh, because of a relationship allegedly she has with a special prosecutor, Nathan Wade. Um, what's going on down there? Where is this heading? And do you think she keeps her job? Or does it totally derail the Trump case? 
Well, I think that's the biggest question is what this does to the case that she's brought against Trump. I mean, this was such um, a strong and direct uh, indictment of the former president, not just on the federal level, but on the state level. So that even if he does, uh, if he is exonerated on all of his charges, he would still have to come and answer for what he did in Georgia, uh, which really, I think, was a, a rallying cry for many Democrats. A lot of that now um you know, frankly, has been discounted. Now, it's 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 unclear whether she'll lose her job. I don't think that's the case. But just the strength of the case that she did bring against uh, the former president, of course, has really been damaged. And what I've heard from sources in Georgia on the political side, just discounting the legal, the, the legal side of all of this and, and the, the instances of wrongdoing, it's just a lot, a lot of hand-wringing and real outright anxiety because, um, President Biden won Georgia by a very, very slim margin, as we all know well. I think it was just under 12,000 votes. And so if Democrats are hoping to replicate that success, they're going to have to galvanize and excite that same coalition of voters, which may have grown in the last four years, but is still going to be extremely difficult uh, to, to, to get back out to the polls um, and, and possibly expand that margin. And it's things like this that a number of Democrats in Georgia feel threatens enthusiasm um, and gets in the way of their ability to actually get voters to pay attention to politics and not drama and get them back out to the polls. And so right now, it's just one other um, one, uh, just one new thing to kind of add to the weight of the work, I think that Democrats are having to do in terms of getting voters back out and getting them to focus on the real issues here. Uh, and I know the judge down there has ordered a hearing into these allegations, and we'll see how that uh, how that plays out. And meanwhile, bringing us back here to the Congress and to Washington, uh, Philip, I know this is not your daily beat, but you've been covering this like all the rest of us, watching um, Republican and Democratic senators who've been working for a long time to work at a deal, bipartisan deal. This seems they're very close. Mitch McConnell is behind it, even though there's some little question about that this week a deal which would uh, provide some more border security funding for to deal with the problems at the southern border, at the same time, some more funding to support democracy uh, in Ukraine. Uh, And yet it looks like that whole deal could fall apart because Donald Trump doesn't want to see it happen. Here is uh, Mitt Romney first this week um, saying how bad this would be if Trump were to derail it. And then Josh Hawley, following up on Laura Ingram, saying this is exactly why we want to kill this deal, back to back. I think I think the border is a very important issue for uh, Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is, uh, is really appalling. If it's not dead yet, it should be dead. I mean, there is absolutely no reason to agree to policies that will just further enable Joe Biden. So there you go, Philip. Uh, It's Senator Hawley making pretty clear we want an issue. We don't want a solution. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is pretty obviously correct. Uh, You know, we saw this with the House a couple of weeks ago when there was a dispute between the White House and the House over uh, whether there'd be increased funding. And Mike Johnson, the speaker, was asked about it. And he basically was like, well, we got to do something. And he just sort of demurred. He, He didn't deny that this was the case. I don't think this has any effect on Republicans. Uh, you know, the, the Republican bubble of, of media uh, focus is, is so solid that they will get a pass from all of their voters. But I think, you know, I mean, setting aside the obvious moral challenge 
that exists at the U.S. border, <laughs> yeah. as well as, you know, the, the, along the political thing. From from a political standpoint, I think this is probably beneficial for the administration, right? Democrats, uh, Joe Biden gets to get Democrats and some independents whipped up against how the, it's the Republicans' fault by their own admission, right? So, so while people may feel frustrated by what's happening at the border and feel frustrating at the effects of that um, and have been targeting that toward Biden, now Biden very easily can point to Republicans and say, look, I tried to fix it. They stood in the way. We got to reelect me and more Democrats in November or else this is going to be an ongoing problem. I think it's a, I think it's a total gift for him come November. It, it puts Mitch McConnell in an awkward spot, too, doesn't it? You know, he's played this game of not really being a Trumper and yet not coming out against Trump, right? Uh, I, 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 I have not seen anything in the past two decades which would suggest that Mitch McConnell is ever worried about being put in a box by inconsistencies <laughs> in his politics, right? You know, I mean, like, yeah, I mean, that, that, that ship sailed when Amy Cohn and Bryant was just, you know, sworn into the Supreme Court. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, he, he, he is a, whatever you think of, he's a master uh, strategist, right, when it comes to Indeed. legislation. In fact, wow, wow, what a great look back at the week. Um, I'm sorry if there's anything we left off the table, um, but thanks, a big thanks to our panel for their insights on uh, all the news of the week. Uh, again, to Philip Bump, Washington Post, Melanie Mason, from Politico on the West Coast, and Maya King from the New York Times in the South. Now, as you were uh, following everything this week, there must have been one story, there always is, that captured your attention particularly and caused you to stop in your tracks for at least a moment <laughs> and weep or laugh about it. Uh, we call it our favorite story of the week. Um, well, where do we start? Maya King, start us off, please. Sure. Um, so the story that I chose for this week comes from my former Politico colleague, Chris Catalago, who traveled through South Carolina uh, with Governor Gavin Newsom, who was, I guess, soft launching a 2028 or I guess flirting with 2028 under the guise of spreading the gospel of the Biden-Harris administration. And it was such a great look at this, you know, kind of uh, just real California figure with this windswept hair and um, and and style uh, talking to groups of black voters uh, in rural South Carolina. So many really rich details here. Um, you know, some of the foods that he ate, a text message from Snoop Dogg um, about getting involved in the campaign and just a number of fun conversations that he had uh, with black voters here in, in the Palmetto State. I thought it was a great look at South Carolina and a great look at Gavin Newsom and the dance that you have to do in terms of talking to constituencies that you really don't know too terribly much about, but yeah. uh, still have to appeal to. So really, really great coverage from Chris this week, I thought. How did he pull it off? Did they like him? Did he come across? I think so. I mean, I, I, I think he's he was kind of a, a, a new a new person to so many people here in Cal, in Cal, in uh, excuse me, not California, but in South yep. Carolina. But um, they definitely liked a lot of what he had to say. And then, of course, uh, in, ta- in bringing up Snoop Dogg to a group of, of athletes here in South Carolina, that definitely got some people's attention. All right, Melanie Mason, you're exporting your governor to South Carolina. <laughs> I, I would like to second that Chris's story is just is just incredible, including these text messages from Snoop Dogg. When I read it, I texted I texted Chris and was like, 
did this really happen? Like it's so on the nose that you almost can't believe it's real. So I would like to to second that that is a, a must read story. And what else? Do you have another one to add, or you? I do. Gonna... I do have one. Yeah. It's a little bit of a, a a bummer, at least I would say, particularly for uh, us on the panel. But um, but indulge me for a second, which is that uh, before I joined Politico, I was at the LA Times for twelve years. Oh, it yeah. was my journalistic mm-hmm. home, um, and uh, I still feel very loyal to it. And it's it was just a frankly terrible week um, for the LA Times, and not just the LA Times, for a lot of outlets across the country. We saw at the LA Times in particular, a hundred and twenty layoffs. Uh, this was on top of 70 layoffs that happened last summer. Um, and this is a crisis. It is a crisis that um, I, I think that you all know well, and I certainly, I know, Bill, your listeners know that we don't necessarily have to lecture them on why this is a big problem. But if you wanted to understand um, what a big problem it is, I really recommend this piece um, called The Death of the Washington Bureau by Cameron Joseph. It ran in the Columbia Journalism Review today. Um, Cameron, actually, I worked with him. He had freelanced and done some work for the LA Times when we had co- collaborated on some stories about Senator Dianne Feinstein. Um, I from out here in California, and he was in DC. So he's a really talented reporter. And he just took a look at this really just terrifying decline of regional coverage of of Washington from these um, local newspapers and what happens when these gigantic states like California almost have nobody now watching the story. I think that you can count on one hand the number of reporters that are dedicated to the California congressional delegation. This is the most populous state in the country, the largest delegation in the country. The fact that we do not have enough people minding the store, it does, it's not just bad for us as reporters. It's bad for us as Americans. We just, you know, how are we going to be able to hold people accountable if we don't have people in these jobs? Um, I don't know the solution, but I just know it's been a really, really tough week. And to everybody out there who's been affected to the layoffs, um, I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking of you and um, happy to send beer money your way because it's just been, it's been a rough one. It is a very, very tough time for all of us in journalism. And, um, uh, you know, every day it seems, right, there's another... Another disaster, disaster story like this one. I read Cameron Joseph's piece this morning. I was just, just shocking to see the LA Times, which once had such a mighty bureau here in uh, Washington D.C., almost non-existent now. Uh, Philip across the board, sadly, right? And uh, uh, <laughs> you may want to comment there, but also add sure. your favorite story. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, uh, you know, I mean, the Washington Post, like of 240 people over the course of the past month or two, right. uh, yeah. it's been, it's been brutal. And, you know, I mean, honestly, I, I came prepared with this very lighthearted story and I, this certainly, you know, <laughs> Melody didn't team me up super well for it, but it does remind me that, you know, it is a privilege to be able to just sit and have some lighthearted conversations in this moment. Um, and to, you know, to do the work that we do and to be able to, you know, still do some fun things, uh, you know, even under this shadow. So, I mean, I appreciate the opportunity to do that too. Um, so with that, with that awkward transition, having been completed, (laughs) uh, my favorite story of the week, I was, I was as anyone who's ever met me or heard my voice probably can guess. I was kind of a nerdy kid in high school. Uh, I was in high school in the early 1990s. And so that meant that I listened to the Smiths, uh, this, you know, British band from Manchester is kind of mopey, uh, but fun. And, and so I'm, I've been a big Smiths fan my entire life. And I was very, very, very surprised then to see political reporter Ben Jacobs report that a Smiths song had made it into Donald Trump's uh, rotation yeah. at his rallies. Uh, which is extremely non-Trumpy, you know, it's for a lot of reasons. Um, 
And so in short order, uh, the, the Smiths being the Smiths, the guitarist from the band Johnny Marr did that standard thing that bands do when they're mad and they say, you can't play our music anymore, which of course is very complicated because the rights to the music often isn't owned by the bands and they go through these clearinghouses and all these other things which I've written about in the past. But that's neither here nor there. I want to get to the punchline. The punchline is the song that was being played at the Donald Trump rally was the Smiths classic, Please, Please, Please Let Me Get What I Want. <laughs> I did see that story, and I was wondering how they were going to stop Donald Trump from playing it. But he probably—I I doubt that he knows what they're even playing, right? Or he would oh no, it. no, he's very. You know, the, the, the reporting I've seen, he's, he's very attentive to his playlist. Oh, Sometimes right? at oh. Mar-a-Lago, he'll like act as DJ at, at, at you know for oh, the dining room. Oh, he's very invested oh. in that. Yeah, there you go. Well, um, a sort of related story. My favorite story of the week is an entertainment story too. We've talked about a lot of things, uh, all of us, about which might impact the 2024 uh, election, particularly if it's a Biden versus Trump rematch. Uh, it could be what happens on the border. It could be what happens uh, in terms of a ceasefire in, in Israel, Hamas. But maybe the biggest thing of all could be the news this week that Jon Stewart is returning to The Daily Show uh, as executive producer and as host one day a week on Monday evenings, John Stewart will be hosting The Daily Show, which I think uh, is the last thing that Donald Trump wanted to hear because we may remember back in 2016, nobody got under Donald Trump's skin uh, more so than John Stewart, uh, particularly when he famously, in sort of slamming all the Republican candidates for president, he singled out Donald Trump as the worst of all and gave him the unforgettable nickname of Fuckface Von Clownstick. <laughs> I think we will probably hear that again uh, and more uh, this time around. Uh, John Stewart, knowing him, he'll be slamming Donald, uh, Joe Biden as well, but he'll save his particularly vitriol, I think, and uh, sarcasm for, for Donald Trump. So it should make the 2024 election uh, even a little spicier than it was going to be uh, anyhow. And thanks to all of you for joining us today uh, for this great Reporters Roundtable. Now, only one assignment, which is, well, two assignments. One, have a great weekend. And two, come back and see us on Tuesday. Uh, very excited that our guest next Tuesday is going to be the dynamic young congressman from uh, Florida, Jared Moskowitz. He's a guy, he's a member of the House Oversight Committee. You've seen him, you've heard him. He drives James Comer and Jim Jordan crazy because he tells the truth in the most colorful way possible, uh, Jared Moskowitz, Congressman. Our guest on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, come back and see us on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. We'll see you then.